0: Hello and welcome to anything but traditional. I'm your host, Tamar Ben and I'm so happy that you are here today to listen in on my conversation with Roxanne Weinberger. Roxanne is no stranger to challenge. She has overcome so much in her life, and her life has truly been anything but traditional. I've known Roxanne for numerous years, but. I never knew her story until this episode. Every single sentence, I was blown away. Utterly speechless at so many things that she said. It's truly remarkable how much she has gone through and how much she has overcome. She was born in Florida, grew up in Oregon, and then at the age of 20, went on a birthday trip and said, that's it. And she's lived in Israel ever since. Nothing got in her way. She became a paramedic in the army and saw some of the worst atrocities. But she continued to persevere. At the same time, she was becoming religious, learning how to daven, learning how to be firm, keeping shabbos, keeping kosher. A few years after joining the army, after moving to Israel, she met her husband. And A few years after that, they had their first child, then their second, and their third. Unfortunately, each one was a NICU baby, and the second one didn't make it. He passed away at the age of eight days old. But Roxanne shares how she persevered, how she kept moving. Today, Roxanne serves as a volunteer coordinator to help those That were evacuated from their homes. In Yeshuv Shlomit. She shares how you can help. Those individuals. The evacuees from Yeshuv Shlomit. How you can give to them. This Hanukkah. And many other opportunities. To give to them as well. I urge you to stay. Till the end of the episode. To listen. To every word of her story. And hear. Hear how you can help the people of Yeshuv Shlomit. There were many times that I honestly didn't know what to say, didn't know what to ask. It was just so moving. So join me in my conversation with Roxanne. Hi, everybody. I'm here with Roxanne Weinberger. Um, Roxanne Weinberger was originally born in Miami, Florida, um, and she became a paramedic in high school. Um, She went on birthright and felt this overwhelming feeling of being home, decided to stay. um, And she joined the Army in November 2009 after basic training and becoming a combat paramedic. In special forces of Nahal, and um, today she lives in Afrat and has with her husband and two amazing girls. She's volunteering as the um, volunteer coordinator at Yeshuv Shlomit um, that helps the families have been evacuated from their homes. They're on the border of Egypt and Gaza, and she volunteers to help um, with all the volunteer coordination and. Uh, the donations, and get them what they need. Um, So I'm very excited to welcome Roxanne. So we're going to jump into it. And, you know, Roxanne, I would love to, you know, hear more about your upbringing. I know that you were born in Miami, Florida. You have a younger brother and an older half-sister. But if you can tell me more about where you grew up and what your family was like, that would be awesome.
1: So I was born in Florida and lived there until I was around eight. And then um, we decided, my parents decided all of a sudden just to um, move to um, Oregon. Uh Um, We grew up conservative in Oregon. Um, We lived in a town called Ashland, which was, for the United States, it was considered small. It was a theater town. So we had a Shakespeare festival. It was a tourist town. So during the summer, they had a lot of tourists, but it was out in the out in the wilderness. So we had um, a ski resort that was 30 minutes away and we had a white water rafting and hiking. And I just compared to where I grew up in Florida, where you couldn't even go out to the front yard without having to have a parent there because it was not safe. I grew up and I was allowed to go out and, you know, go across the street by myself and go to friends' houses by myself. And it gave me so much more freedom. Um, That's awesome. And, even though it was a small town, it was—it actually had quite a, for a small town, it had a lot of a lot of Jews.
0: Wow, I did not know that, so, that there's a lot of Jews in uh in Oregon in general. Like I, I'm not holding at all, <laughs> but that's really cool. Um, I don't
1: know. I don't know how many Jews there are in Oregon in general. I mean, I know that there's Portland and Eugene that have communities, but other than that, I don't know where else there actually are communities besides where I grew up as well. When I was growing up, there was two synagogues. There was a Jewish renewal, which was like the hippies. They had like the drum circles and stuff like that. <laughs> and then we had a conservative reform synagogue, which is where we kind of more went to. Um, and then as, as I was moving here, the um, Chabad was coming in. <laughs> So now there's now there's three communities within our small town. And
0: your parents are still in Oregon.
1: No, they moved to California a few years ago.
0: Oh, cool. We're in California.
1: Um, Temecula. It's like in between LA and San Diego.
0: Cool. Okay, fine. Cool. But
1: and my brother, my brother's still in my brother's still in Oregon. Oh,
0: do you have any um family in Israel?
1: No, I came here by myself.
0: Great. When you were how old were you? I was. 20. Wow. That's awesome. That must have been really uh, challenging. I also came by myself, but later, and I had two siblings here. So I wasn't so close to my siblings at the time, but uh, it's not the same as coming fully by yourself. But how was that to come by yourself?
1: I came on Birthright, and even going on Birthright, like I wasn't sure I wanted to come on Birthright. And growing up, like in our school, we had a one for sure one couple that was israeli and like a couple of other people that had been to israel and also like the shul rabbi kept on like telling my parents that like i was like more like in tune with my judaism than like most other people and people kept on telling my parents i was somehow going to end up in israel and they never really like believed it but i always was like always like very interested in like the holocaust and reading more about judaism and learning about it than my parents even were and Somehow my parents convinced me to go on birthright, even though I wasn't totally, like, into it. I was very scared to travel. I'd never been, like, flying by myself or anything like that. And I had to meet my birthright trip in New York. So to fly by myself to New York and stuff like that, I was very scared. Um, So I wasn't so sure. And then somehow I got here, and I had this overwhelming feeling that, like, I got home. Wow.
0: And you knew that from the first day?
1: I knew that. So we got off the plane, and we went straight to the Canaryte. And somehow looking over the canary, I had this overwhelming feeling that, like, I made it. I'm home. Like, I'm not leaving. Wow,
0: that's amazing. So, you know, did you – I know that coming to Israel, as you've been saying, it was really not something that you had thought to, like, do. And then, you, you know, area came up and you decided to go on area And it was very, like, scary in the beginning. But what were your expectations for your life when you were growing up? Like, did you have – you know, any like expectations of what your life was going to be like? Did these expectations change over the years? Like, how did they change?
1: Um, So growing up, I always wanted to be a doctor. My mom said from like, when I was first able to start talking, I start, I always wanted to be a pediatrician. And then as I got older, I decided I didn't want to be a pediatrician. I wanted to be a nurse. And I wanted to be a nurse practitioner. So I was actually in school to be a nurse practitioner. I had just finished my I was in my last semester to become a, a nurse, to start the nurse practitioner program um, when I came on birthright. And um, that kind of didn't fully happen. I finished the studies. I didn't finish the exams. So like over the years, like I still had that kibun of like, I want to stay in the medical field, but I realized that doctors do more of like the paperwork. They don't with the patients as much and nurses are with the patients. They really get to know the patients and so my goal when I was still in nursing school was to become a pediatric nurse practitioner or like work in the NICU with babies. I was volunteering at the time in the NICU as a cuddler, holding babies when their parents were gone. And I had been I was working um, on the ambulance shift because I had I had just finished my paramedics degree, and so my my goal was still to be in medicine at the time.
0: Wow, that's really interesting because I know that you know part of your story is that you had you've had three. Uh, Nick you babies yourself, right? Yeah. Wow. So you like had a lot of experience going into that.
1: Yeah, but going having experience as as a medical professional and as a mother are two totally different things. Great
0: for sure. So, but did your experience shed like did your medical background help at all with your you know, being becoming a mother of a, of NICU babies or not so much?
1: Um, I think in some ways it did because you're a little more prepared because you know what to. You know, you're going into a NICU, it's not as scary because you've been there, you've seen it, you've worked in this environment. But at the same time, when you're a mother, the anxiety is probably just as much because it's your baby instead of someone else's baby that you're taking care of where... When it's someone else's baby, you can take care of it. You don't have as much emotions there, whereas when it's your baby, the emotion is ten times intensified because it's your baby that's in the incubator instead of someone else's baby that you can just take care of and then leave the room.
0: For sure. So we're going to go back to that story in a little bit because that's definitely part of the story that we don't want to skip over. Um, But going back to your journey of coming to Israel, Um, and you know you said that you were a paramedic so you in the army so you in 2009 you became a paramedic in the army um and what was the timeline like of coming to israel becoming a paramedic in the army like what how that happened how that developed
1: so i was um i was on birthright and Within, like, so I'm, I told my parents, like, that night, after that first night, that I was staying in Israel. And then over that first week or that 10 days, I'm like, okay, so if I'm staying in Israel, I'm going to join the army like every other citizen. Um, and so then I stayed. And I went to Star Elf for two months while I was kind of figuring out the process of how to make Aliyah.
0: What did your parents say when you were like, okay, guys, I'm going to stay here. Peace out. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so. They weren't, like,
0: I mean, I think because my mom
1: had, like, had heard from all these people that, like, I was going to, like, from this Israeli couple that, like, I was going to be here at some point. Like, this is where I was going to land. Like, so they weren't, like, totally surprised. But I think that they were, like, a little bit surprised because, obviously, I was still in school. So they're, like, they were, like, okay, so maybe you should come back to school and finish and try to plan. And, like, I was, like, no, I'm not having any of that. I'm staying.
0: (laughs) I'm going to find a way. (laughs) Wow. That's, yeah. I mean, so what did you end up doing? Right, so you made like you moved to Israel right after birth, right? You came to birth, right You made you you moved to Israel. You made Aliyah at the time, or you just moved here? So I couldn't because
1: like, Aliyah takes time. I couldn't make Aliyah right within a week. So I after birth, I I went home. I think for a week because my parents really convinced me to come home and try to make a plan and maybe go to, back to school. So I came home for like a week, and my parents saw how depressed I was just being home. <laughs> So <laughs> I really, all I wanted to do was get back to Israel. So I finally went back with the intention that my parents were like, okay, just go back for like six months. Stop your studies for six months and just go back make sure that you like it. And so really within like that first week of being back, I'm like, no, mom, I'm, not, I'm, I'm staying. You're, I'm not coming back.
0: Wow. Wow. <laughs> where were you living?
1: So I joined Sarel.
0: Okay, what Saral?
1: Sarel is where you can volunteer to work on army bases or volunteer on army bases. So during the week, you, you're you on the army bases working with the soldiers, and then on Shabbos is you're off. No, so so I did that for two months. I, I was working on different army bases with, with all these groups, and it's people from all over the world. So some of them are actually Christians that come because they feel like they want to give back to the country. Some of them are other Jews. It's different people from all these, the, the whole range coming. And you work on the army bases from Sunday to Thursday, and then from Friday and Saturday, you you're off. And they have a they have a place, they have apartments that you can stay in in Tel Aviv where you can go to friends or whatever. So that's what I did for two months while I was trying to figure out my next steps, wanting to try to get into the army, make aliyah. And
0: it was really cool. Wow. So then you finally got into the army and you were part of Nahal as a paramedic.
1: Yes, yeah, so I finally got into the army. It took me a month and a half to get into the army. And um, I did basic training. And um, basic training was, it was all the Russians and then a little bit of English speakers. And all the English speakers were, um, Dati Lumi, essentially. They were in a green sabar together and they were the Dachi Lumi people. So oh, that what made you more religious? So that's what made me more religious is I started hanging out with the, all the English speakers. And, um, within the first couple of days, I realized that if I went to, if I went to shul in the mornings with them, I didn't have to clean with the Russians. <laughs>
0: So funny! <laughs> wow, I love that.
1: So I started going. I started going to shul in the morning, and they gave us like an hour to daven. And on Mondays and Thursdays, when there was Kriyat torah, they gave us an hour and a half to daven. Wow! So I got, I started going to shul with them, and I would. My friends would daven, and I started reading Derek Hashem. Um, that was the only English book that they had in the shul. <laughs> So I started reading, and then when my friends were done, they would start teaching me the, the davening. And I realized that I knew a lot of the davening from being conservative in the States. So they started teaching me, and it started, like, I was like, oh, I know this. This is so familiar. Oh, I know this. And they started teaching me about, like, being, you know, religious and the different things. I'm like, but this is stuff that, like, I've learned about just, like, in different ways. So it was, just, like, something that, like, really stuck to me. I was like, oh, but this makes so much
0: sense. Great. Wait, so what, I mean, it's so interesting because maybe I'm wrong about this and I don't fully understand, but you said Green Sabar, right? Like you were, you were with the Green Sabar people? You were on Green Sabar? I wasn't with
1: Green Sabar. No, the other, the other English, the other English speakers in my basic training were, but I wasn't.
0: When you were becoming religious, you, that was also with Green Sabar people?
1: Yeah, because it was whoever wanted to go to shul in the mornings went to shul. And it was all the English-speaking religious girls that it's went to so shul. so
0: interesting, though, because I feel like Green Sabar is not a religious program.
1: Um, it depends. So then after I finished basic training, what happens is after basic training, you kind of go on these interviews to go find out what your, your job is in the army. Go ahead. I happened to go to an interview in the base to be a secretary at the Nahal base. And my Hebrew was horrible. I didn't know Hebrew. <laughs> so they're like well we can't use you as a secretary your Hebrew's is too bad <laughs> but we do need to have a paramedic on the base we're looking for a new paramedic so oh, wow. since you are a paramedic we'll just take you as a paramedic go interview with the doctor
0: wow so you were like i'm gonna go be a secretary and then it's like man i'm actually gonna be a paramedic that sounds awesome i mean that sounds intense yeah but that sounds like much more involved than just a secretary yeah so how was that I'll admit that because
1: I didn't know enough Hebrew, I actually really didn't know what I was getting myself into because I didn't know that I was going into a special forces unit. (laughs) I didn't know that the base was right right next to Hebron at the time. All I was told was get on this bus and go and get off at this spot. So I had no idea (laughs) what I was getting myself into. Wow. (laughs) But it was, I mean, once I started learning things, like, I think that because I didn't know what I was doing because I was my Hebrew. It was probably better that I just jumped right into it than if I would have known that I'm joining a special forces unit and I'm going to Tyrone which is scary then just okay here just go and do it
0: wow that's amazing so you know from your time as a paramedic in the army like is there any story that you could share with us like as you were paramedic something that you helped with something that you experienced like what was your time like there it
1: was definitely intense I mean as special forces, you serve on very, very intense borders. So we served in Hebron. We served in Kerem Shalom. We served in the border of Lebanon. We've served in Ramallah. We served in the very, very, very intense borders. Um, So I've seen everything from Picoas to terrorist attacks to, you know, just regular car accidents. And During my time in the army, we also were experiencing intifada. So our time in Karam Shalom was a time when there was also a lot, a lot of rockets. It was one of it was one of the times where we had like a heated I w I wouldn't say intifada, it was one of the times where we had like a very another mission, whatever you want to call it, tensions where we were getting rockets daily. It was two thousand ten it was two thousand ten at that time.
0: (laughs) So, okay, so you were in the you were in, you know, you were serving as a paramedic, you went to all these intense scary places and you were becoming religious at the same time okay so what was that like like how did your relationship with god change as you were being like seeing everything as you were because like it is such a i feel like it's such an intense time to become religious when you're literally like seeing the worst of the worst and then like you're like like did it help you connect to to god did it help what was that like i think that like
1: so when I was in the army I mean I you have to remember that I was in a unit where I was the only combat I was like one of the only combat girls with 650 guys about So there wasn't a lot of time to okay I'm just going to go off and dive in here like <laughs> there's not much time for that, especially when you're going out and you're doing raids in the middle of the night, and then you have to wake up still and do the kitchen inspection before breakfast is served, and then you have to open the mirrorpa for whoever's sick. Like there's not a lot of time for just daffening. Um, But I think at the same time, like it was just coming naturally, like you know. So I would light candles on Friday night, which even though I did that at home naturally, it was just like that was like where my time was to connect, or you know, I was learning more and more about. I always knew about, like, keeping kosher, but learning more and more about the halakhas of it because one of my jobs was inspecting the kitchen, Um, you know, or just different things about just various ways, like why we wore skirts. I didn't wear a skirt in the army because I couldn't, but as soon as I got out of the army, I threw away all my pants and started wearing skirts. Um, So it's just like, I think it was just coming naturally to me in different various ways,
0: So, and how long were you in the army as a paramedic?
1: Two and a half years.
0: Wow. Okay. So you were in the army, you were in the army for two and a half years. At the same time, you were becoming religious. And then after the army, you continued to become religious, but you weren't serving as a paramedic. After the army,
1: I moved into the old city and started going to the free classes that they had at Asia Torah while also working as like a nanny babysitter for an incredible family that also like just took me under the wing and kind of just taught me everything there was to know about being religious. And then eventually after like going there for a couple of months at, to Asha Torah, I finally asked, I don't know if you know Rabbi Yom Tov Glazer.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't know him personally, but I know who he is. Yeah.
1: So finally, like he was like one of the rabbis I really respected. So I'm like, okay, so I'm starting to like become more interested in like learning more intensely, like, you know, like a seminary. So he, he directed me into where to go to find a seminary that would be more of a team to what I wanted to study. And so then I started going to Midrash at Raquel.
0: Cool. Wow. Okay. And then what happened after that? So then I eventually moved
1: into, like, just a girl's apartment in Katamon. And I started going to Midrash at Raquel for probably also, like, two years while just working and studying.
0: What were you working at? at the time? or just working as like a nanny or uh, like just various places. You had given up on the, the nursing?
1: For the moment. I found out that trying to transfer a degree if you hadn't done the licensing exam in the States, I meant that I had to go back to school full-time. I wasn't interested in going back to school at the time. Got it. Wow. Now they make it easier, but then they didn't make it it's so it's easy. Crazy.
0: Okay, so... You Went to meet Jesuit Rachel.
1: I started going, to, I was going to meet Jesuit Rachel, and around early 2014, one of the teachers, um, knew both Michael and me, invited us for Shabbos meal, and that's how we met. No, that a Shabbos meal. Oh,
0: wow, that's so nice. She
1: invited both of us and another girl with the intention that Michael would kind of be interested in me but he she didn't want to make it awkward for both of us so she invited another girl to see who would be who he'd be interested
0: in and uh he picked me i feel like it's like kind of like the modern you know the jewish version of the bachelor like which one are you going to give the rose to you know (laughs) so nice awesome so okay so michael and you met 2014 and you were working you guys were living in katamon and then you moved to Cheshmana M.
1: So we actually, after we got married, we dated for, we dated for a couple, we dated for a couple weeks, and then he proposed. And like how many um, weeks did he? We got married in, in August.
0: How many weeks did you date for? <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> we bought rings after two weeks. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. It is well, all crazy. I did not realize. And then
1: he proposed a couple weeks. Later. He proposed, um, like, five weeks later. Wow. <laughs> I kept on spoil i kept on—I kept on foiling his plans.
0: <laughs> so funny. I kept on figuring it out. Wow, that's so funny. And at that point, you were, like, where—I mean, where were you religiously then? I was—I was, um, fully Shomer Shabbos and stuff. Wow. So, okay. So, your life really was anything but traditional it did not <laughs> live up to any of the things that you thought about when you were in high school. It was just beyond like, e- yeah. yeah. So, okay. So then, you know, y- you and Michael um had your first child. Um. What- so after we got married, we, we moved to Hashmonim
1: about two years after we got married and then we had our we had our daughter.
0: And your daughter was a preemie, as we were saying, great, because you...
1: She was a preemie, wow.
0: yeah. So what was that like?
1: Um, I mean, I had a very, very difficult pregnancy with her in general. I was, I had hyperemesis with her. Um, so I was very, very sick throughout the whole pregnancy. And I spent about 10 weeks in the hospital, in and out of the hospital. Um, so it wasn't an expected... You weren't. I wasn't going into the pregnancy expecting to be sick or expecting to have a Can preemie. I mean, I don't think anybody what does.
0: What hyperemesis is?
1: Hyperemesis is when it's more than just morning sickness. It's like you're throwing up anywhere from oh, multiple HG. times a day, but constantly. No, constantly HG. sick. What's it
0: called? HG. HG. Yeah, HG. Yeah. HG. Oh wow. Okay, but it was like yeah. very intense.
1: It's very. It was very very intense. I was throwing up anywhere from thirty to fifty times a day
0: wow wow okay so then you went to the hospital and you were in the hospital for how long
1: i was in the hospital i mean i was on and off i was in the hospital for a couple weeks in the beginning and then came home and then i was in the hospital again and then i ended up going into labor at like 26 weeks um and then i was in the hospital until i gave birth to her
0: and you gave birth to her at
1: i gave birth to her at 30 weeks
0: 30 weeks yeah. Wow, so she was really like a NICU baby.
1: She was a NICU baby, like... yeah. She was tiny. She was a little bit over a kilo.
0: Wow, that's so intense. And I guess keep going with your story. Like, what was that... How was it raising a NICU baby? What was, you know, what happened next?
1: I mean, so she was definitely like... Of like her NICU state overall, even though it's intense, was fairly easy compared to, I guess, other NICU babies. You know, she... She really was just there to grow, but it's still, it's intense, it's scary, it's your first baby, it's, you know, there's a whole mix of emotions, you know, you come home and it's still, you have to make sure they're fed, they have to make sure that they are eating, they still can get sick very, very easily, so there was a lot going on, um, and it's its scary.
0: And the reason why she was a NICU baby was because you were having such intense HG, they wanted...
1: No, I, there was other complications. Um, I just went into spontaneous labor. Oh,
0: wow. Wow.
1: Yeah, and it wasn't, it wasn't related to the hyperemesis. Wow,
0: and then when she was, how old did you have your next child?
1: She was a year and a half old when we had our son. Um, and we gave birth to him at 28 weeks. And unfortunately, he passed away at eight days old. Wow.
0: Can I ask, like, what happened there?
1: Um, so, yeah, unfortunately, like, I went into labor early with him also. Um, and I had gone to the doctor, like, a couple days prior and was having regular contractions and the doctor just kind of told me to go home. And so, unfortunately, I listened to the doctor and didn't, didn't, like, I think because also I had a baby, another baby at home and I... I should have just listened to myself and gone on to the hospital, but I didn't because I trusted the doctor. And um, unfortunately, once I went to the hospital, when the contractions were getting worse, they weren't able to stop the labor in time or give him the steroids that he needed to develop his lungs. And he just got really, really sick and he was too sick to, to
0: continue to survive. So I'm assuming that you did not go back to the doctor when you had your third kid.
1: No, wow. <laughs> I didn't. Wow. I I found someone and she was else. Also a NICU baby. My third was also a NICU baby,
0: and that also similar to the first.
1: Um, she was born. She was born even earlier. She was born at 27 weeks.
0: Whoa, that's really yeah. early.
1: It's really early. She was born very very tiny, and this time when I thought I was when I had like the first sign that I thought something was wrong, I went straight to the hospital. It was also during Corona. So, I didn't. At this point, I didn't trust going to one place and then going to another place. I just went straight to the hospital, and they were able to give me all the things to try to protect her body if she did come early. So, Brachasim she came out a lot stronger, and Brachasim also she, she had a fairly uneventful NICU stay.
0: And how? I mean, how long were these NICU stays? The first. Like baby in the in the third like so daughter. Our
1: oldest was in the NICU for like forty five days, I think, or something like that. Forty seven days, and our youngest Talia was in the NICU for seventy days. Seventy
0: days. That's a really yeah. long time. And what can I ask which hospital?
1: Um, our oldest was in Har um in Karam, and our youngest was in Harasafi.
0: Wow. And okay, so now. You're you moved from Hashmanim, you're living in the frat. You had these two.
1: Yeah, we moved we moved we moved from we moved to a frat while Talia was still in the NICU.
0: Wow. What made you decide to do that? Well, we were hoping that I wasn't gonna go into labor early.
1: So we had planned to move in the summer anyway. And um we wanted to move. We wanted to move because we wanted we actually really like a frat and we needed a. Uh, we wanted, like, it's better school. We like the schools here. We like the community here. We have friends okay. here. So we planned to move, and we didn't think that. We figured that even, even if Hospital of M.I. had given birth early, like, we would just plan. And that's what we did. Even with the emergency the C-section everything like that, we were able to plan and get, you know, we had the movers help us and stuff like that, and we had friends help us, and we managed. Um, so
0: the other question, you know, is you became – Religious, you had this whole religious experience, and then you had to face three NICU babies, one of which died at eight days old. How did your relationship with God change with that? Like, I feel like it's so intense to go through after becoming religious, seeing everything that you see- saw as a paramedic. Like, how did you stay religious?
1: I don't know if it's about how I stayed religious or not stayed religious, because I think that I still had faith that—I think I have—I always have had this faith that everything happens for a reason. And, you know, look, it also took us, you know, three years to get pregnant with our oldest. You know, it's—we've always had challenges, but I've always known—I've seen that even if these challenges come—and yes, we lost our son, but— at the same time, like, look at the fact that now, you know, we have an amazing daughter. Did I see that at the time? No, I couldn't see that at some point I was going to have another kid. It took me a long time to get past the fact that I lost a son. And I was I, I, I was in a very, very big grieving process. It took me a long time to even go to a friend's breast or to see another baby without getting jealous. And I hate being jealous of other people. But I couldn't not be envious of a person that came home with their baby i was pregnant with another friend at the same time and she had her baby and i didn't i couldn't see that friend for six months wow it took me a long time to get past that point but at some point i was able to get past that point and realize that okay so this is what happened to me this is my story but i can't stop i can't stop and not live my life i can't stop and i still have my kid that i have to take care of i still have my husband i have to take care of it took a long time, though. And it, there's still pain. There's still pain that, you know, my oldest daughter still talks about her brother. She was a year and a half old, but she still remembers him. She still talks about him. Wow. She'll say, she'll, she'll talk to me. She's like, Mommy, I'm the best and Ty is the best and Earl is the best and Daddy is the best. Wow. <laughs> and that just like, it hurts. It's amazing to hear it, but it hurts at the same time. But he's still a part of our family um and also like when we had our youngest we need her middle name is mihira which is light and our son's name was uriel which is light wow. so i think it's like we gave that memory of him to our daughters that she and she brings so much light to our to our That's
0: house
1: beautiful. That's so beautiful. <laughs> she's a little ball of wow. i remember
0: i remember when I actually like, you know, as being part of um the greater fertility community, um, I remember a lot of when you had, you know, not when you had the first child, but when you had Ariel, and then when you had Talia. Like, I I remember, um, and it's there's really, yeah, it's really intense, and there's no words for any of it, um, so, but you continue to remain resilient you continue to remain strong and I just like I'm really in awe of all of that um and now you're raising your two beautiful daughters um what was the grieving process like though how did you cope with those emotions and then more intensely how did you grieve the process of losing your son so
1: I think that when they're in the NICU I don't know if I actually really grieved when they were in the NICU. I don't think though. So. I think they, I just had to focus on the fact that I have a babies I have to take care of and they're not home. So how do I take care of them? With Taya, it was very, very different because not only did I have the anxiety of having another baby that was a NICU baby, but also having the an anxiety of, am I going to lose this baby because I already lost one? So there was an added anxiety that I didn't fully... Understand or know how to deal with at the time. And it got to a point where I had very, very, very severe trauma that I'm now starting to handle because I was so scared of every little thing that was was wrong with her or possibly wrong with her.
0: And then you... I
1: was scared every single time that she coughed. I was scared of every single time that she... Anything, anything that was possibly wrong with her, I was scared of because I was scared I was going to lose her.
0: Wow. And I mean, the other thing about losing your son at eight days old means that you didn't have the religious mourning process, right? Like you didn't have Shiva or how, like how that work.
1: So even though it was not, there was no formal process. We still we buried him. He has a grave. He has a. uh, We have a place where we can go. We have he has a formal caver. Um, and we did have a shiva. We had two days that we sat, and people came. We had one day in Jerusalem and one day in Hashmoni because it wasn't a formal shiva, but it was our own way of mourning and having people come and, and be with us. Um, and we still, I still say Kaddish for him. I still say Yitzchak for him because this is... Even though it's not a formal thing, it's this is what I need to do for myself.
0: For sure. For sure. And if... I mean like there's no moving on from this it's but you seem to have been able to be so resilient and and continue living and continue life for your girls and I'm just I'm in awe I'm really in awe sure. and now you're Thanks. helping so many people um since October 7th with being a volunteer a coordinator for um, Yeshuv Shlomit um, you know first of all I want to know what was your experience like on October 7th you know especially after everything you went through as a paramedic um, and just like yeah how did you deal with October 7th what was that day like for you um, it was tough
1: it's Going to shul in the morning, I kept on hearing the booms. And I kept on saying to myself, walking to shul, like, oh, it's just the Arabs doing construction. And I kept on thinking to myself, but the Arabs don't do construction on Shabbos. It doesn't sound like construction. So I kept on, like, knowing what it was, but not really, like, like, trying to, like, tell myself, but it's something else. But, like, really, like, knowing what it was. And then we get to school and like we hear the seven domes, and I seriously just completely lost it. Like, I was trying to hold it together for my for my daughter, my oldest, because like she was losing it as well. She's been scared of the rockets since the last ones we had around Neumhatsmoots. She's constantly telling me, "I'm scared of them. I'm, when's it gonna? When's it, when are there gonna be more rockets? I don't want to hear the sirens again." So when it actually happened, she was freaking out. So I was trying not to freak out for her, but like at the same time, like. One of my friends that was, like, there with us in the bomb shelter she's like, you're, like, you're, like, being so strong for her. But I can see that you're, like, she's, like, I'm just staying with you because, like, I want you to know that, like, I'm here for you. And this is a friend that knows that I've been in the Army and knows that, like, I've seen things and knows that, like, I have trauma. So, like, I was so grateful for her that, like, the three times that we had to go to the bomb shelter that day, she was there for us. And she was, like trying to make it okay for Shoshana and trying to, like, help, like, you know, the girls, like, make it fun for them and stuff like that Well, giving me the space that, like, if I needed to break down, she was there. And Rakush, I'm like, I didn't, but I was so close to, like, just completely losing it. Wow. And then, like, the second thought was, like, you know, we I didn't know exactly what was going on, but, like, I was starting to hear pieces from people, of, like, oh, like, there's been invasions here, like, there's, you know, terrorists here. And so the, the second thought was, like, I just want to go back and, like, try to do what I can. But at the same time, I'm not in reserves anymore. So what can I do to help? And, but, like, I don't want to leave my family. So, like, it was, like, it was, like, very, like, a feeling of, like, lost, I think. Of, like, what can I do but, but, like, to help but, like, not knowing what's going on. So there was a feeling of, like, being lost, I guess. Your
0: husband never did the Army.
1: No, he never did the Army. He was too old.
0: So, on October seventh, you weren't nervous about him being called in, but or you it wasn't even a question of him being called in, but you i would have i would have been the one did to be you called you ever in. think of like volunteering as a paramedic in the army, like what were your i mean
1: thought about i thought about it like, yeah, for sure in the first week like I thought about it, but um I also know that I got out of reserves like ten years ago when we got married. And so I didn't really know even if I wanted to. I I wasn't I wasn't religious in the Army, and now I'm religious, and now I have kids. And to feel like I would leave my kids and go, it would be very, very hard for them, but it would also be hard for me. And there's so many other opportunities of how I can volunteer without being in the Army. Yes, the Army needs me. But at the same time, like, I, I want to be home with my kids and not put so much pressure intention and fear there and I think also because of the trauma they've experienced within the army and stuff like that I didn't I didn't think I would be able to handle it
0: like your kids I feel I mean so much more to you because like of everything you went through with your children like I'm saying it would be really hard to leave your children so
1: for sure like I was volunteering with Hatsala for a couple years I reached out to them um, but they also have a. They have a lot of volunteers, so I wasn't needed there either right now. Um, so there's been like obviously, there's been other things I've been doing within the yeshuv and stuff like that. So I've got I got busy right away.
0: <laughs> so how did you find yeshuv Shlomit?
1: So I was volunteering with doing a lot of things within Efrat. I was volunteering. Um, one of the things I started volunteering for was um, finding host families for people that were. T- evacuated and connecting those host families together and then we got a whole bunch of Mifunim to the guest house here in Afrat and I was helping out there and then within the first week they also got the Mifunim to Kvarcion and they needed more volunteer coordinators there so I I offered to do it I didn't realize how big of a job it was I'm like okay fine I'll I'll go see what they need um and it was, it was a big job. There's, there was, there's 85 families that were evacuated, which means that there was 340 people and 240 kids that were evacuated from the Cichu. Um And it's not that they were just evacuated. They also experienced a huge trauma. They, on October 7th, they found out what was going on and they sent out a security team um, their Kitat Qunanut, to go protect one of the other Yishuvim that um, had had um, Arabs invade the Yishuv. So as they were, as the Ketat Quninut was going and protecting the other Yishuv, they unfortunately lost four men. And four men were seriously injured. So it's not only that I was going to volunteer for this Yishuv, I was going to volunteer for a Yishuv that had experienced a huge trauma.
0: So where is the Yishuv, I mean, where are the, people that were evacuated from the jishov now
1: so they were originally in kvar at the field
0: school there and now they're at um the Kramin hotel okay wow that's a nice day i mean not (laughs) not in a nice situation every place has every place has pluses and minuses um and it's not home great 100 percent wow no for sure i mean the Kremium Hotel, in normal times, it's like, wow, like, you went to the Kremium Hotel. I'm sure that right now it's not like, oh, you went to the Kremium Hotel. Like, I'm sure it's much harder. Yeah, but the
1: Kremium Hotel also normally doesn't allow kids. So now they're having to accommodate kids when they've never normally done that. So it's, it's also, like, it's trying to accommodate a place that have never really accommodated kids. Now you're putting 240 kids into a hotel that... Doesn't have a space really for kids to
0: go run around in so it's also it's, there's pluses and minuses to a lot of things interesting I wasn't even thinking about that so what what are they doing at the Kramima hotel in terms of i mean like how are they living these days
1: so each family has de- either two or three rooms depending on how many kids they have hotel rooms they have a room for the parents and then depending on how many kids they get two or two or two other one or two other rooms for the kids um And then they have, they converted the whole spa into a school. Wow. So there's no more spa rooms. There's all school rooms now. Wow. (laughs) It's kind of funny. It's kind of funny to go walk in and see. There's like no spa rooms. It's all, it's a whole school now. Wow. And then in the afternoons, they had people that come in and um, do activities with the kids. They've done chocolate workshops. They do dancing. They do different activities with the kids.
0: That's so nice. Wow. But it's kind of squishy at the hotel. It's squishy. There's no space to run around because there's it's a spa
1: hotel, so there's no like fields of grass to run around and kick a ball. There's no basketball course. The yeshuv right next door is the, like allowing them to use like the fields there so the kids can go run around and use the playground. But that means that you have to leave the hotel to go to that.
0: Great. Great. Wow. And, I mean, are these the people of the yeshuv, were they like, are they mostly Shomer Shabbos? That like on Shabbos it would be difficult. It's a Detty it's a
1: Detty issue.
0: Wow, so it's not, it's not really like Shabbos friendly either. I'm assuming, crimin. Um, like
1: for the kids. the hotel for the kids, and they have like they have toys and stuff like that for Shabbos, and the restaurant cooks for them for Shabbos, so like it's. It's
0: definitely – it's a Mahadran hotel. You're right. No, but I'm saying, like, there's no, like, fields that they can play on. Like, can they walk to you? Uh, no, but
1: they've made, like, the oh, – they've made two of the um, bigger rooms into, like, playrooms areas and stuff like that. And so there's stuff for the kids to do. It's just – it's not home.
0: You're right. 100%. 100%. So – and you – how often have you been to the hotel to visit them, like – have
1: you so i go twice i go two to three times a week depending on what donations i'm bringing them what the needs are there like this week i've already gone once to bring um sensory toys that actually my company donated and sent over on a plane so i brought them i brought them sensory toys for the schools and the therapy rooms um i have to go again today to bring them water balls that they requested for the kids for school so i'm not using disposable ones Um, I'm going again tomorrow because, um, I'm bringing them, like, um, undergarments for the woman. Some of them are still wearing the same undergarments from, like, a month ago.
0: Wow. And, and who's doing laundry? So, and these are all donations. Like, where are they even doing laundry? They have
1: washing machines. They have washing machines that were donated there on each floor. So they sign up for a time slot to do wash, to to do their laundry.
0: There's no words. It's so crazy. So...
1: It's really crazy. And you also
0: have you sat with them and like had to give emotional support. Yeah. So like right now
1: I'm sitting with one, right now I'm sitting with one woman to plan her son's bar mitzvah because her husband's in Mielewim.
0: Oh my god. So
1: I told her, I told her, like I'm six years ahead of the. I'm doing six years ahead of the game. Like my daughter's six now. I get to like figure out how to plan a bar mitzvah, so I'll know what to do in six years.
0: <laughs> crazy. So, and what is? I mean, they're probably not going to be in the yeshuv for the. Bar Mitzvah. No,
1: they're doing it. They're doing it. I think in Beit Shemesh or in Nefra. they're they're trying to figure out where they want to do it. And then we're gonna like brush and There's people that are donating their time and their effort to like make it nice. Wow, it's really cool. Cause like I walk into the hotel and like everybody knows and they're like, "Hey, Roxanne, so nice to see you. Like, did you bring your kids? Do your kids want to join the game now? Like, they really know I me. Mean, this really feels like a part of a family
0: now. Wow, wow. And Yeshuv Shlomi, like, was you know, is there anything to go back to? please god one day
1: yeah they were never invaded they were never invaded and they were never so brachishim is there um so they have what to go back to they they want to go back they just can't until it's not a military zone
0: so crazy so how could people you know the anyone that's listening that may want to be involved in helping yeshu Shlomi. like how could they help is there any way that they could help what is there any place like where can they send donations to what what's the most helpful thing that we can do right now for Yeshuv Shlamit
1: so the biggest thing that I mean first off if they want to help they can definitely contact me um because everything is going through me right now usually either by email or by um or by whatsapp are the best ways and right now we don't send anything that's that's used to the Yeshuv because they got so much used stuff and they're just I mean, I would feel the same way. After a while, like, just getting used to stuff, you feel like it's, you're being, it's second, it's like second thoughts. So they really just want stuff that's new, good condition, you know. And, and right now, it's also just making sure that we're giving them things that they really need. So right now, we're thinking about Hanukkah and what their, what, they need, what their needs are for Hanukkah. We're giving them, for Hanukkah, we're giving them gift cards so that they can go out and choose for themselves what they want. Because they've gotten a lot of, like, things of, like, okay, so we're giving them the toys, but let's let the kids go out to the toy shop and choose for themselves what they want. Wow. Or let, let's let give them a gift card to a restaurant, have the, have the families go out as a family to a restaurant, have
0: just private time as a family. And how, I mean, are are you able to get donate? like, have a lot of donations come in? Are you, like, in need of a lot more money for this like how are you affording
1: so it's just it's something that we have just started so we we're just starting to donate we're just starting to get donations now um and if they people contact me i'm working with the organization so they can send donations through the organization if they want a tax receipt
0: wow amazing um and besides for sending donations is there a way that people could help like on the ground? there is more just donations
1: yeah if they want to come volunteer they're definitely looking they're looking for regular volunteers to come in to run who game to do workshops um you know they're working they're looking for people to come and do tutoring um different things like that so if they want to come in and volunteer they can definitely come in and volunteer as well but it needs to go through me so i can put it i can put them in touch with the right people
0: wow Amazing. Amazing. Wow. Roxanne, you're doing incredible work. Um, I just wanted to, you know, wrap up with you, your story, because it's not just about all the incredible work that you're doing at ish It's about so much more than that. You know, we've gone through the, your experience in the army, your experience as, you know, in nursing school and then not being in nursing school and making aliyah, and and becoming religious and being the mother of three NICU babies and having a baby that died at eight days old. Like, there's so much here. Um, So I just wanted to wrap up with a few, you know, last questions. First of all, like, what are you doing Now, on a daily basis, I know that you're doing, you're volunteering for those, um, in you, you know, that have been evacuated from Yeshiv Shlomit, um, but what are you working as, what are you doing, um, on a daily basis, how do you spend your time?
1: So, I, besides the volunteering, I mean, I'm a mom to two, so that sometimes takes up a lot of time, and I'm also, um, working, um, for a special needs company in the States. Oh. I- do accounts for the special need, for this fun, for this company called Fun and Function that's based out of um Philadelphia.
0: Very nice. And you so you do more of like the back end stuff for them?
1: I process I do a lot of different things. I do process orders, I help out with the customers, um different parts on the accounts and I do a lot of different things within the company.
0: Got it. Okay. And then, you know, this story is just one of resilience. I would say that you are such a resilient human being and I have truly, truly, truly enjoyed every bit of this conversation. Um What you know, what is one quote, one Pussuk that you feel speaks to you that that helps you get through the toughest times
1: so it's not a jewish quote per se and i actually don't know where it came from but it's something that i've always grown up with it's came from my dad was the one that told me the quote um the quote is stand for something or fall for anything and i think it's just something that i've always it's always been in my head um, cause I just, I feel like if I'm going to do what I'm going to do, I want to do it with the intention that I'm going to help someone or do something that always had that feeling that I am want to, you know, look for the good and look for what I can do to help constantly and, you know, give back. And I don't want to be the one that's going to just sit there and, you know, maybe it's not as I fall through the cracks, but I feel like I'm just sitting around and doing nothing. I'm always I'm always the go-getter. I'm always the one to try to be out there and put myself out there to,
0: to help others. hundred percent. That's amazing. So what is your you know, if you were to conclude this epic podcast with one last message, what is your message to the world? What would what what is something that you want the world to know?
1: Um <laughs> putting me on the spot. I think that even in our times of need, and even in, you know, everybody's dealing with their own struggles. And a lot of times you might not see the internal struggles that people are dealing with. Even if people have the internal struggles, there can still be a lot that can be achieved and we can still give so much. But even if someone can't give so much, to be compassionate to the people that can't give at this moment, and hopefully at some other points, they will be able to give or be able to participate more. But be compassionate to the people because you don't know what they're struggling with at that moment. And don't—I guess it's more like don't judge, don't judge the book by its cover. You don't know what's going on on the inside. of
0: It's also a way to be, you know, less judgmental and to just yeah embrace everybody for sure. And just keep caring about the whole world and hope for better times and uh hope that you know it's kind of like the famous uh mr rogers quote like fred rogers often told the story about when he was a boy and you would see and he would see scary things on the news my mother would say to me look for the helpers you will always find people who are helping to this day, especially in times of disaster, I remember my mother's words, and I am always comforted by realizing that there are still so many helpers, so many caring people in this world. And Roxanne, that's you, and I think that there—that there's, right now we have to look for people like you, um, and keep up the positive spirit, keep up the everything that you're doing, and um, thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Anything But Traditional. I truly enjoyed my conversation with Roxanne Weinberger. I hope that you learned some important insights into Israel, the atrocities. Maybe you want to even give a donation. Maybe you want to get in touch with Roxanne to figure out how you can volunteer with the people of Yeshuv Shlomit. To further this conversation, because I know that you'll want to, please visit at Tales of Tomorrow on Instagram. Be part of the conversation. Leave your message anonymously or non-anonymously. DM me. Have a conversation. Let's expand the conversation. There's a lot to unpack here. A lot of intense struggles that maybe you can relate to. Maybe you know someone who can. So be in touch. Thank you for listening.